I thought I had paid it. I was confident it had been taken care of. The thought of it not going through really didn't occur to me till I received a frantic text message from my wife that simply asked me this one question, did you pay the energy bill this month? Now, it's one thing to ask that question in the spring or fall here in southern Indiana, and it's another when it's August and you personally are responsible for two babies and your wife at home. Well, wanting to assume the best of the situation, I immediately responded by saying, of course I did. Who do you think I am? Now, my wife knows who I am. That's why she asked me to begin with. Well, apparently what happened earlier that day was Vectran, our power company, came to our house and hesitantly shut off our energy due to a long outstanding balance on our account. I was completely taken back by this. I was shocked. And so I immediately got on the phone with Vectran to see where the ball had been dropped. And come to find out, I hadn't, I hadn't paid the energy bill in about two months or so. Again, I was completely taken back by this. And so I then called our bank to see if a withdrawal had been made from my account around the same time of the month that I paid bills. And to Vectran's credit, I just had completely overlooked paying the bill, though I had written it down in my checking book like I had paid it. And so it was rather obvious whose fault this whole dilemma was. And so I then called Vectran back and I said, you will never believe what my wife did. <laughs> now I look back and I was sincere in the, in the sense that I thought I had paid the bill, but when it came to looking at my bank statements, my sincerity was completely irrelevant. I mean, though I had written it down in my checking account, I'm checking a book like I had paid the bills, I had completely missed it. I mean, after all, numbers don't lie, Right. Last weekend, Ken talked to us about these religious leaders during the first century known as the Pharisees. Now, they were very moral and upright on the outside, yet deep down, it was just an empty performance. And so what we learned from them is that though they were sincerely, they sincerely thought they were honoring God, when it all said and done, they were really opposing God. And so what we learned from their example is that it's possible to have the right intentions and completely miss it. Now, if you were to sit down with the average Jew about 2,000 years ago, unlike us, their perspective of Pharisees was very favorable. I mean, spiritually speaking, to acquire the status of a Pharisee would be the equivalent of having the corner office, making the Final Four or Super Bowl. I mean, these men were highly regarded and respected and revered in their culture. And so I guess that's why Jesus' confrontation with them in Matthew chapter 23 came as such a surprise to those who were standing nearby. I mean, again, they were probably thinking to themselves, what is he thinking? What is he doing here? If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn there with me right now. Matthew is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the Old Testament book of Malachi and New Testament book of Mark. It's on page 700 in the Bibles right in front of you. Now, as you're turning there, my story of our power getting shut off gets a little bit worse. I hesitate to tell you this part, but it's possible that Vectran gave me several warnings every day for about a week leading up to our power getting shut off, that there was an outstanding balance on my account. But I just thought to myself, you know what, the mistake is on their part. My, my, my payment will eventually be processed. And so I'll just go ahead and say what all of you are thinking right now. I mean, how stupid of me, right? And so here in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus' words should be perceived more as a gracious warning against where hypocrisy ultimately leads. In the first 36 verses, Jesus' tone here is justifiably harsh as he is confronting their hypocrisy. But in verse 37, the tone switches from confrontation to compassion. 
from harshness to sorrow. Check out what Jesus says in verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. Now, if there was one word that would summarize the overall condition of the Jewish people and the Pharisees at this particular point in history, it would be the word rebellion. Rebellion. Jesus says that they killed his messengers. Now, these were men of God that had been sent to Israel to call them back into a relationship with the Lord. In other words, God had pursued them in the midst of their idolatry. But what did they do? They rejected him. You see, they wanted to be their own saviors. Their their idols were just more important than their God. You see, rebellion or sin is anything besides God that brings you significance and comfort. And so in a moment of vulnerability, Jesus mourned over this. Now check out how clear Jesus makes his intentions later on in verse 37. He said, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings but you wouldn't let me. I want to be clear about something. Jesus does not impose himself on anyone. You see, he doesn't force you to believe. He doesn't make you surrender. Now notice how Jesus uses and illustrates his love for us by using a bird. Now what's that all about? Well, Jesus' audience here was very familiar with this image. This part of the world during the first century was dominated by Rome, and it just so happened that the eagle was the premier symbol ancient Rome used to signify authority. In fact, as the Roman, as the Roman, um, as the Roman army would march to battle as a unit, one soldier had the job to carry a giant large pole with an eagle flaring its wings mounted on top. It communicated prestige and power to their opposing enemies. And so though the Jews and Roman authorities were at odds most of the time, remember the reason why the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah is because they anticipated him being some political revolutionary. So basically their hope was in the government. But it's as if Jesus says, look, I've got something far better for you than just political dreams. You want me to save you from Rome? How about I save you from sin and death And so what Jesus does here with the bird is he takes a symbol representing earthly supremacy and he compares it with his sovereign authority and in essence declares, look, there's no match here. Let go of your expectations. I am God. You can trust me. And so whatever it is that we're holding on to tightly today, only when we run to Jesus do we realize that he alone satisfies You see, Rome is anything for you in your life that gives you comfort and significance outside of Christ. It's what your hope is ultimately in. Perhaps for you, it's that next promotion. That person who you think will cure your singleness, that first pregnancy, that degree, that home, that portfolio. You see, while those desires aren't bad in themselves, when it becomes all that we are and our identity and significance is tied so closely to them, Our salvation has subtly shifted from Jesus to something far less. And so in the midst of our rebellion, what Jesus offers us is this, redemption. Redemption. You see, in his grace, God has pursued us in the midst of our rebellion. Look at what Jesus continues to say in verse 38. He says, and now look. Your house is abandoned and desolate, for I tell you this, you will never see me again until you 
until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, basically, Jesus says, hey, look, when you see me suffocating on a cross later on this week, don't be deceived because I am going to make a return one day that will be so monumental, so big, that it will be impossible for you to miss. Obviously, this is a reference to Jesus' second coming. Now, tomorrow... um, Jimmy Fallon will be taking over uh, Jay Leno's spot as the host of The Tonight Show. Uh, Before Leno or Fallon, the host of The Tonight Show was a guy by the name of Johnny Carson from 1962 to 1992. Well, about 30 years ago, Johnny Carson had Billy Graham as a guest on his show. And at one point during the interview, there was a lull in the conversation. And feeling a little bit awkward with this spiritual giant, Carson said, You know, Billy, he said, if Jesus ever came back, I bet we would do him in again. At that point, Graham kind of leaned forward in his chair and he said, You know, Johnny, the Bible predicts and promises that Jesus will come back again. The first time he came in love, but the second time he will come in power and no one will do him in. And so if that's true, what does that mean for us today? I mean, if it's true that we have all rebelled, if it's true that redemption is made available to us, what's our response? I mean, what's the connection here? We first must understand where Jesus is headed with this confrontation with the Pharisees. You see, the point that he was trying to get and really his overall direction here was to bring about repentance in people's lives. It was to bring about repentance. That's what it was all about. You see, remember, Jesus came to this earth to gather his children, not necessarily to thin the crowd. And here's the thing. Every one of us in here today, we have all rebelled and we're all in need of redemption. From the devout religious person to the addict, God looks at us all the same because the debt upon our life is equal. You see, the greatest need you have in your life is to be rescued from your sin. And so when it's all said and done, here's what it comes down to. The redemption of our rebellion begins at our repentance. The redemption of our rebellion begins at our repentance. Now, repentance here, that's simply a fancy Bible word that means to turn directions, to turn around. Think of it like a U-turn you might make while driving down the road. Now, repentance, it's important that we call this grace-driven repentance, or else it becomes all about what we do rather than what's already done. Now, God is constantly calling his people throughout the history, throughout history, into a grace-driven repentance relationship. Now look at what uh, the prophet Joel says in the Old Testament. Through These were God's words. He says, turn to me now while there is still time. Give me your hearts and come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. This is how he started out his ministry. He started out by saying this, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Later on, Peter, an early church leader, would write this in one of his epistles. He, God, does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And Jesus, when confronting the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation, he says this. These are his words. He said, repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Now, you see, when we trust Christ... We are delivered from the penalty of our sin, which is death. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we have been delivered from the power of sin. Charles Spurgeon was a um, preacher in England back in the 1800s, and he said this. He said, repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. And so what does repentance look like? I mean, how do we go about this? 
Well, the first challenge I want to throw your way is this. Take off the mask. Take off the mask. Now, when our true colors are exposed, our tendency is to dismiss what we did or cover over it. But neither bring us freedom, though. You know, it's interesting, of all the things that Jesus detested the most, it was hypocrisy. Like what we saw last week, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites six times in just a few minutes' time. Now, a hypocrite was a type of Greek actor who wore a mask and pretended to be someone else up on stage. You see, if we're not careful, the Christian life can easily morph into a performance I mean, church can very easily be this production where all we do is compare good deeds. But you see, being a part of God's kingdom is about taking off our mask, even when we're afraid of what people might see underneath. And so no matter who you are, we all know that something, when, when we do something wrong, it weighs upon us, right? I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. When you do something wrong, you feel a little bit guilty about it. Back in 1811, President James Madison's administration established what's called the Conscience Fund when someone sent him $5 because the individual had defrauded the government. Now, to this day, this is a special gift fund maintained by the Department of Treasury, which allows people who have cheated the U.S. government to make contributions without penalty. One person wrote in and said this, Please accept this money for the two postage stamps that I reused. My favorite is this one. One guy says, Dear IRS, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. In close, you will find a cashier's check for $1,000. Then he says, If I still can't sleep, I will send you the rest. <laughs> kind of defeats the purpose, if you ask me. But you know, people have always tried covering their tracks ever since evil first entered the world. And Genesis chapter 3 actually records what that moment was like. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were living in a state of perfection with only one boundary, and that was this, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And so what did they do? They ate it. But do you know what they did the moment after they disobeyed and they sinned against the God of all creation? Like what a lot of us still do to this day, they tried to cover it up because they felt shame. But when they did that, the Bible makes an interesting observation after their sin. Look at what it says in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. What's that all about? Continue on. Here we sit. So they sewed fig trees together, and they made coverings for themselves. And so what Adam and Eve does here is that they thought the solution was just to put a mask over their sin, acting like it never happened. But you see, God saw the entire thing. Now here's the thing. There was nothing Adam and Eve could have done that would have been sufficient enough to have covered over their sin. You see, it's impossible to disguise your sin before an all-knowing God. This is why the New Testament tells us that the only solution, our only hope, is if we clothe ourselves with Christ. Because you see, He alone can conceal our guilt and shame. Now, a lot of us, I think, know this, but isn't it just our natural reaction to hide at times? You know, maybe you don't try to hide the real you, but you just put a mask on hoping that no one will notice or that your issues in life will just kind of dissolve away. 
Tim Keller in his book, Encounters with Jesus, makes the point that we all know deep down that something is wrong with us. After all, he asks, why are you working so hard? Why do you need to be right all the time? Why do you worry so much how you look? And then Keller says this. He says, it's because you know there is something wrong and you're trying to purify yourself, prove yourself, and cover it up. Now, I think a lot of us, we approach church kind of like uploading a photo to Facebook or Instagram. Now, what do you do before you take a picture that you know will be shared with friends and family members and some of your followers? Well, you put on makeup, you get your hair looking right, you make sure the kids quit hitting each other, and you hide your cigarettes, you take your chew out, and you put the beer away. And guys do this too, all right? Now, we all do this in an effort to create this false sense of reality in life. I mean, the definition of arrival today is when someone covets your life based upon the photos that you upload or the posts you make. I mean, no lie, I've had to defriend some people on Facebook because I still want to like them as a person. And I don't care how perfect your life is, okay? I mean, when was the last time someone took a picture of them fighting with their spouse or what they look like when they first wake up in the morning? I mean, nobody does this, right? And yet this transfers over into other aspects of our life. You're having some difficulty in your marriage, but you refuse to say anything to your small group. Maybe you realize you've got this addiction that has a stronghold on your life and you just kind of sweep it underneath the rug. Perhaps you feel this incessant pressure to be a perfect stay-at-home mom. You see, but what we need to realize today is that the gospel frees us from that type of enslavement. I mean, where else on earth can you gather together with other people and celebrate your brokenness? It's the church because we serve a God who redeems and whose power is made perfect in our weakness. You see, maturity as a follower of Jesus is not seen in our ability to become stronger and more independent as the years go on. It's just the opposite. The closer you get towards Christ, the more you realize how inadequate you are and yet how sufficient He is. Well, the next thing that grace-driven repentance leads us to is this, is that we are to turn from performing to surrendering. Turn from performing to surrendering. <clears throat> Now, as we've made clear, the Pharisees were performers, and what they were doing is they were leading other people to do the same. People were emulating them. They were obviously having an influence on others. Now, this is what Jesus says about them in Matthew chapter 15. He expounds upon this and says, These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are merely human rules. And so what Jesus says here is, when we focus purely on obedience without really remembering why we obey in the first place, Jesus says, look, you've completely missed it. And so rather than trying harder, the call to follow Christ is a call to surrender more. In his book, One Way Love, author uh, Tolian Chivagin talks about what psychologists call ethical behaviorism. And this is when a person's righteousness is defined exclusively in terms of what they do or don't do, and so a righteous person is someone who does the right thing while avoiding all the wrong things. Now, this is a very destructive belief because many well-meaning Christians think that God cares only that we obey. And yet, what does Jesus say here in Matthew 15? He basically says, you have reduced my relationship with you down to human rules. 
And so the call to grace-driven repentance means that we not only take off our mask and confess our sin, but it's about surrendering every fiber of our being. It's about turning over our hearts rather than just our behavior. But here's the catch. Getting from performing to surrendering, it doesn't happen unless you get grace. And when it's driven by grace, action and obedience will always follow. Now, several years ago, my wife and I spent an entire weekend at my parents' lake house in central Kentucky with about 12 of our closest friends. And on one particular night, we were in the living room playing a board game together, and a friend of mine um, told a joke that really wasn't all that appropriate. And I knew at the very least I should have steered the conversation down a better path. But him telling a joke made me remember another joke that was like it, and wanting to get the laugh, shocking, <laughs> I ended up telling it. Later on that night when I went to bed, I could barely sleep. I, did, I just felt so guilty about it. Now, just because I felt sorrow over what I did didn't mean that I had repented of that. You see, repentance, when it's driven by grace, it will always lead to action, not passivity. And so though I felt guilty and though I felt remorse over what I did and I knew God had forgiven me, the evidence of my sorrow would have been seen if I would have done something about it. And so performing for me in that instance would have been if I would have gone on with life like nothing had happened and not apologizing to those who were there. And so a couple nights later, I called up everyone that was there. I just swallowed my pride and I said, you know what, I owe you an apology. I should not have told that joke the other night. That was so lame of me. I need you to forgive me. You see, we surrender because of grace. We don't surrender for grace. And when repentance is driven by grace, it will always lead to action, especially when it's not driven by rules or obligation. Now, Paul kind of explains this tension and this concept in Titus chapter 2. Look at what he says. He says, it, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so what Paul is saying here is that, look, when it's all said and done, it comes down to what Jesus did for us on the cross. But when we repent in an effort to earn grace, we have reduced our relationship with Jesus down to human rules. But you see, God has a better option because he is not in love with a better version of you. Brennan Manning um, said it like this. He said, God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. Now, Jesus, he died because of the Pharisees. But he also died for Pharisees. And that means a lot of us in this room today. And so what, what's grace calling you to do? How can you turn from performing to surrendering in your life? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to apologize to? Well, the last aspect of grace-driven repentance means that we simply do this, and that is to delight in what's already done. We delight in what's already done. My experience has been is that if you don't end up resting in your salvation, you end up working for your salvation. Look at what Jesus says about the Pharisees earlier in verse 4 of, of Matthew 23. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. Now, these Pharisees had burdened people with rules that God never established. Therefore, it resulted in people thinking they were honoring God, when in reality they were opposing God. 
This was simple, old-fashioned legalism. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a father who had two sons. And one day, the younger son approached the father and asked him for his inheritance so that he could go off and live how he wanted. And so in his undeserving kindness, the father gave it to him. Well, it wasn't until too much longer that the son had spent all the money and it hit rock bottom in life. But in a moment of clarity, the son came to his senses and wondered if the father would ever take him back. Only this time he thought as a servant. And so as he approached his father's estate, nervous, sweaty, and weak, the dad saw him off in a distance and he ran towards him. And Jesus says that he kissed him and he embraced him. And then look at what the father tells his servants. He says this, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now notice the father doesn't say, what were you thinking? The father doesn't make him pay back the money that he had spent. The father doesn't even make him a servant. Instead, he simply rejoices that his son has come home. Now, there was nothing that the son did to warrant that kind of affection from his father. Therefore, the only thing he could do from that day forward was to delight in what his dad did for him and embrace the grace that he had been given. Now, in our culture, and even inside the church, we're addicted to this idea of growing and earning and performing and progressing. And, uh, you know, we, we oftentimes think that, you know, if... if If we meet God in the middle, then he will be obligated to to bless us and he'll be more pleased with us. Perhaps that's why a percentage of Americans in the church believe that 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 this verse is in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. We see it's not because the gospel is this, God helps those who can't help themselves because because they've come to the end of their rope. And so practically speaking, what this means is that the person who is raised in church is in the same category as the addict, the murderer, the thief, and the adulterer. Why? Because both need to be born again. And last time I checked, I did nothing to earn my birth into this world. You see, God does not make you pay a debt that's already been paid. It's what some call the self-substitution of God. And so when was the last time? When was the last time you simply took delight in what Jesus has done for you? On her blog, um, Ann Voskamp writes about a story that occurred at the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. In July of 1941, a prisoner had escaped the camp, and whenever this would occur, the Nazi protocol was to execute 10 prisoners in their place as an act of retaliation and to discourage other Jews from doing the same. Well, a Polish man by the name of Francis Gajonizak was there that day, and he stood outside his barrack hoping that he would be lucky enough to escape being one of the ten. After all, he was only 42 years old and had a lot of life to live if the war ever ended. Well, after nine names were called, sure enough, the Nazi commandant spouted off Francis Gajonizak as the last prisoner to be sent to his death in the starvation chamber. When he heard his name called, he fell to the ground and unashamedly started begging, No, I'm married. I have children. I am young. Please, I beg of you, not me. I mean, naturally so. He was just shattered in his desperation. 
Well, as he kept pleading with the guards, behind the Jonah's ex stood a Jewish man by the name of Max Colby. Colby was a Catholic priest and known throughout the camp to be very Christ-like. Everybody loved Colby. He always had a smile on his face. And before the guards were to take Gajonazek away, Colby stepped forward in front and said to the guard, let me take his place. He is young, I am old. He is a father, I have no kids. He is married, I am single. And he said, take me instead. Well, Gajonazek just laid on the floor unable to speak. He would later write this in his journal. He said, I can only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on. And Colby, he was dragged off with the nine other men left to starve. Well, 14 days came and went with no food or water for Colby. He was the only one of the 10 that survived the starvation bunker. And so on August 14th, 1941, the Nazis executed him through lethal injection. Max Colby would be the first and the only person to ever offer his life for another in the history of Auschwitz. You see, his death was completely undeserved, but it was totally voluntary. And what you may not see is that's our story. While on the brink of eternity, in our moment of desperation and plea, another Jewish man stepped forward and offered to absorb the death that we deserved. You see, because of the sin in our life, we were deemed guilty. And as a result, we were headed towards the eternal chamber of death. But then a Jewish carpenter by the name of Jesus stepped forward and said, she's mine. Take me instead. Don't kill him. Take me. And so how would your life look differently if you really believed that the sinless Savior of all of humanity came and he died for you? How would your life change? And some of us, we need to really ask ourselves that question. Some of us, we've come in here and we know we need to repent and turn from performing to surrendering. Others of us realize that we have this need, we have this debt in our life that we can't pay ourselves and you just don't know where to turn. And so very simply, here's what I'm gonna ask that you would do. I ask that you would receive Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to know all the answers. He'll take you just as you are. And so if you need to do that today, in just a moment, we're gonna stand in uh, one last worship song. And I ask that you just make your way out of your roads, head down the aisles here. Me and a few other pastors will be up front. We would love to walk alongside you in the midst of that decision. And if you're worshiping with us in the chapel, there will be pastors up front there as well. But you see, don't leave here today without understanding that you have an opportunity of a lifetime, of an eternity, to embrace something that you can't do yourself. And that's grace, salvation. And so if you need to receive Jesus today, then I ask that you come forward as we all stand and sing and worship now.